Hello and welcome to Two Bald Men and Friend, the show where we talk about issues and ideas using pop culture as the springboard. I'm your host, Joe, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Yeah, hello. And today we are joined by our friend, Greg. Hello. Today we're talking about Schindler's List and how it resonates in today's society. So, spoiler alert for Schindler's List. Sit back, relax, or if you're driving, please sit upright and continue to drive vigilantly. So, Greg, before we get into the movie, do you think you could give us a little information about your background? Yeah, sure. So, I have a master's in international affairs. Um, big personal interest of mine is in genocide. I have uh, a lot of academic background in the Rwandan genocide in particular, uh, but through that research, obviously, I've, I've touched upon the Holocaust as well. So it's definitely uh, an interest of mine in how people uh, normalize hatred to the point where they are systematically able to kill entire groups of people. Right. I definitely find it interesting that you focused in on the Rwandan uh, genocide when most often you hear a lot of people, they know about the Holocaust and then no other genocide. And even even in my context, I know the names of other genocides, but I really mm -hmm. don't know what happened and like the atrocities that occurred. So I, I find it, I guess, a little bit amusing that you sort of uh, flip the script on yourself. Yeah, a big reason for that is my freshman year of college, I learned about the Rwandan genocide in an intro class, and it just boggled my mind that I knew nothing about this. Mm -hmm. And as I dived deeper into that topic, it just was something that was like, wow, I need to spend more time learning about this. And uh, it led all the way to grad school where I continued focusing on that area. Yeah, I think uh, we'll get into this more. And again, I could be completely wrong because I really don't know anything. But I think the only reason we learn about the Holocaust is because it happened during World War II. So there's this tangential American involvement in it. But then in most other genocides, there's really no connection. So like, a lot of school systems are like, well, why would we teach that? We teach American history. Right. And that's a huge problem that's really, and when we talk about first world countries, the United States has a really big issue with our education system and that our history classes barely touch upon any world uh, history. Like occasionally we'll have one maybe freshman year of high school, um, but it changes from state to state. And because they focus on the whole world, they get snippets of a bunch of places. But I get, I got US history in sixth grade and eighth grade in sophomore year of high school and in junior year of high school. Mm -hmm. And that's, and then obviously in elementary school, we learn like about geography and all of this and a bunch of myths about Christopher Columbus and that kind of stuff. Um, but we don't get into other people's history, which is especially depressing in the context of all of the ethnicities that exist in the United States. So a lot of people don't get to experience their own history. Right. And even with the Holocaust being the primary genocide that we focus on in school, only nine states currently have a mandatory curriculum covering the Holocaust. Yeah, and I think that's a good segue to get us into Schindler's List because Steven Spielberg has said um, he made the movie kind of to combat that because he found that people in the 90s were following a similar trend where more and more people were forgetting the Holocaust or like maybe didn't know the facts and like just knew it happened or maybe even less than that. And he was like, we can't let this happen. And so he made Schindler's List and it's the 25th anniversary of the movie. So uh, it was back in theaters a couple months ago. Um, and Steven Spielberg himself said that it's even more relevant now than it was back in 93 when it came out. Um, so Greg, do you think you can give us a little synopsis of Schindler's List? Sure. So the movie's about a Nazi named Oscar Schindler who takes advantage of the war economy and is an opportunistic businessman. And as the movie continues, we see him transform from being apathetic to, towards the Jewish condition to actually trying to save as many Jews as possible by the end of the film. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we definitely see a, a story, a character arc of a man who's purposefully ignorant. Because he, he experiences, I guess, some sadness um, and a, at a couple of points and knows that if he gets exposed too much about it, at least that's the sense I got, 
he's going to want to combat the atrocities. And he didn't want to know about it. Mm -hmm. And so we sort of see an arc there where finally he gives in and he's like, I can't ignore this any longer. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Um, just like how Greg, you described him as an opportunistic businessman. I think you're right, Alex. Like he is like, this is too good to be true. Like I get all this cheap labor. So if I know what it's, what it's actually costing, like then I'll lose that. So I, th I think that's a big part of it. And then also he has, he does have like a moral dilemma um, that I think comes out throughout the movie as well. Yeah, I definitely would say that this type of movie is a little bit more inappropriate to rate. Um, mm -hmm. Unless we're talking about just like in terms of cinema, cinematography, I think this movie did a great job with its with with the decisions that it made to keep it authentic to the story as well as be compelling enough um, to keep people interested. Yeah, um, I definitely don't think we'll go through our, like, did we like it, how many stars kind of rating, but just sort of similar to what you said, just to point out, the movie was nominated for 12 Oscars, and it won seven. It's on the American Film Institute's top 100 American films list, and it's at number nine. So just in terms of, like, filmmaking, this is a very good movie. Very powerful. I mean, it really tears you apart as you watch it. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite aspects of the movie, which, by the way, I watched for the first time mm -hmm. um, this past week. I watched Schindler's List for the first time, and it definitely shined a light of, I may have been avoiding this movie. Like, it's one of those movies that everyone knows about, but like... Oh, I don't want to feel down, so I'm going to kind of avoid that movie, even though I know it's probably good. It won a lot of things. And after watching it, I felt horrible in like the best way possible of like that really affected me. And it got me thinking of like, how important is it to get people to watch it or how important is it? for people to want to watch it mm -hmm. rather than ignore these, this type of media that makes them feel in a very real way because these types of atrocities occurred. Yeah. Greg, you were telling us a story about when you were trying to get uh, people to watch it like this most recent time before yeah. the podcast. Do you want to? Yeah. I mean, it was just a challenge. I asked several people, Hey, I'm planning on watching Schindler's list this week. Uh, does anybody want to watch this movie with me? And I could not find a single yeah. person who wanted to dedicate you know, three hours of their time to watch this very important film that covers really important topics, but it just seemed to be a burden that a lot of people did not want to deal with. Right. It's kind of like the people, and I'm not saying this, I guess, in a hypercritical way, but people who turn off the news are like, oh, the news is always negative nowadays. Let's just not pay attention to it anymore. Let's not talk about politics on Facebook. Like, let's keep this a nice space. Like, it, there is a sense of privilege there of, well, I don't want to feel this way. And since it's not affecting me directly, I don't need to address it. Yeah, I think uh, we may have or may not have had this quote on the podcast before, but um, something along the lines of not taking a stand is taking a stand. So if you're like, oh, like, I don't really talk politics. That's a stance. Like, you're basically saying, I don't care about the problems. So if you haven't seen this movie yet, this is your nudge. This is your sign. I mean, this is an important one as a human being to be aware of and to, you know, have watched because it really does affect you. And I definitely want to make it clear. We're not trying to be condescending in any way because right. the only reason I watched it was to record for it. Yeah. And after I watched it was when I realized how important this is. And so I want you to take our opinions at face value and just say, you know what? For their sake, I'll watch it. And then hopefully afterwards you'll be like, oh, that guy was right. <laughs> yeah. So rather than talk about the movie and then um, in the second half do the big topic, we're going to walk through the plot of the movie and discuss it as we go along. Just because, you know, you might know bits and pieces of Schindler's List. Everyone's kind of familiar with Schindler's List. But I think it'll be helpful to refresh everybody's memory throughout the podcast so everyone's kind of on the same page with it so the movie starts and um we're pretty quickly introduced to oscar schindler uh, the main character um and we're introduced to him we don't see his face at first he's like getting ready 
And then the first time we see him, he's at this party with a bunch of Nazi officials. And he's almost like a celebrity. He walks in in like a white tuxedo. You know, he's super tall. He's very suave and like he's buying people drinks and like getting people new tables and flirting with them. And he's just kind of like a celebrity that everyone wants to be around. He's a likable guy. I mean, yeah. he's basically seducing all of these Nazi officials and making friends with everyone at the party. He's instantly the life of the party. And as you're watching, you're just like, huh, I would hang out with this guy too. Yeah. You're like, oh man, he's got nice hair, nice suit. He's a Nazi. Wait, no. <laughs> but like you said, like he's just a very likable, charismatic guy. Absolutely. And I think the movie does a great job of building up, I guess, the a positive perspective of what's happening to Oscar Schindler um, because we don't we don't get to the sad parts or the atrocious parts until further down the line and I think it's necessary as a as a storytelling device we need to first feel connected to Oscar Schindler mm -hmm. and we need to feel at ease because once the first turning point occurs then we're suddenly like oh yeah this movie's about this time period in World War II where horrible things were happening. Right. Uh, so this is nice, a nice way for the movie to be like, hey, relax. Like, this is still a movie. It lulls you in. You're gonna, yeah. you're gonna enjoy yourself. And then, pow, right in the kisser. Yeah. <laughs> um, just to touch on it again, we kind of mentioned the movie's three hours. It's black and white, but... Steven Spielberg did try to make it as accessible as possible. And I think that's exactly what you're talking about. They don't go right into it, necessarily. They're kind of like, hey, like, you know, we're all friends here. Let's <laughs> think talk about the Holocaust, though. So, through the connections he's making with the Nazi officials, Oscar gets a factory to produce um, pots and pans to, you know, just become rich. He, that's what he's... It's like his get-rich-quick scheme, almost. And it was for specifically for the war effort. Right. And he was able to lease Jews from uh, a ghetto to be the staff and the labor force for this uh, factory at very low costs. Right. And so his big thing was, like, I'm going to help the Jews by doing this. Like, he sort of justified it for himself, saying, like, in return, I'm going to give them pots and pans. And that's what they're going to use on the black market to trade for things that they need because their money is going to be absolutely useless. So there's no point in paying them in money. Mm -hmm. And that was his justification the whole way. And the reason people agreed was twofold. One of them was the fact that he was right. Mm -hmm. um, but a second part, which we find out later on, is that we sort of see that it's going to become a safe haven, thanks to the help of the accountant, which I want to get into. Yeah. Um, so, kind of without Schindler's knowledge at first, the accountant, who is Jewish, um, is falsifying documents, so Schindler will hire more Jews and basically get them out of the camps and out of the ghettos. Uh, the documents are for the Nazis to deem whether they are essential or inessential. Um, and those people who are essential get to stay, get to, get to stay and work, uh, whereas the other ones get sent to concentration camps. And so while we see the rise of Oscar Schindler, we see the fall of the Jewish uh, people and their lifestyles within Poland. Yeah, so basically what's happening at this time is the Nazis are forcing all Jews throughout the country of Poland to consolidate within urban centers called ghettos. So they have no rights of movement. They are consolidated to these very strict uh, urban centers, and they're not allowed to come or go as they please. So by getting access to be a factory worker in Schindler's factory, they actually have the freedom to leave this ghetto, which is pretty powerful at the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, for what they're going through, that was a big deal. Yeah, they're not technically in jail, but just being able to go like, oh, I have to go to work and like go out and travel from this you know, little neighborhood or, like, little apartment building that they're stuck in, even that is just, like, so freeing and, like, hopeful, I guess, mm -hmm. as much as you could be in that situation. Yeah. One thing I want to mention within, like, I guess you would call the first act is that there's 
a lot of humor. And mm -hmm. again, it's, it's trying to, I don't want to say trick you into committing to the rest of the movie. Um, but one aspect where they sort of transition between the humor and the not humor is we see Oscar Schindler get a brand new apart apartment, like a luxury apartment for himself. And he says, wow, this couldn't be better. At the same time, or right before that, we saw the Jewish family that got kicked out of that same apartment, the one mm -hmm. that Oscar Schindler gets. And we watched them get pushed into the ghetto and we watched them get pushed into a single room. And the wife says, well, it could be worse. And then seven families come in behind to fill in the room. And you chuckle a little. And then you're like, oh, no. <laughs> That's not something I was supposed to chuckle at. Yeah, it's... Uh, the movie has that, like, weird... I don't want to say dichotomy, but it's that thing of, like, oh, that's funny, but, like, a Nazi made that joke? So, like... It's like, ga like gallows humor, really. Yeah. Um, one thing I wanted to mention was um when we're first introduced to um a nazi officer gert he like he's getting the layout of this concentration camp and his like informant is like do you have any questions and he's like yeah why is the hood up i'm freezing or why isn't the roof up i'm freezing and it's like oh that's funny but also you're like so crass about like you know you're entering a concentration camp and like I think I think the movie uses moments like that to be like these are still people like and even though like this is an atrocity especially us looking back at it in retrospect like they're living in it some of them are enjoying it so I yeah. think that's a big reason of why they use like humor in some instances yeah it's just a reminder that normal people can do terrible things mm -hmm. and that's the theme that we'll discuss throughout this session i think but you know these are actual human beings who are trying to live their lives no matter how you know good or terrible they could be yeah, yeah. well one thing that stuck out to me was when the jewish people were in the ghettos and they get an opportunity to stand around and talk to each other and like oh we don't get to do this much anymore we don't get to just sit stand around and talk and the things that they're saying they're sort of saying sarcastically, but it also gives them comfort. Um, one of the guys says like, yeah, actually getting moved into the ghetto is the most freeing thing we've ever had because now we don't have to worry about apartments. Now we don't have to worry about bills. Like we sort of got, we got taken care of. Sure, there's a lot of bad things, but now we have less decision making to make, which is a form of stress. And they all like chuckle about it and they're like, oh, you're so right. But that's what they're using to hold on to hope. And mm -hmm. it... That's all they have. Again, made me chuckle. And then I was like, ah, cringe. Damn, I shouldn't have chuckled. Yeah. <laughs> or I should have. Maybe that was the point of it. But I'm supposed to reflect on that chuckle. Yeah. I think the fact that you're like, oh, I shouldn't have chuckled at that is like where you're supposed to be of like, oh, funny. Oh, but that really happened to people. And like, it's just a really, really bad situation. So I would say uh, the turning point of Act 1 transitioning into Act 2 would be as Oscar Schindler starts realizing the impact that his factory has, but as well as what's happening outside of the factory. Um, one big thing is that his accountant Stern has a worker who wants to thank Schindler for the job that he's doing um, because he's so proud of being an essential worker and knowing that he would have died otherwise. And he comes into the room, and Schindler thanks him, but tries to get him out as quickly as possible. And you sort of recognize this guy as the lovable grandpa. And he's so angry when the guy leaves and yells at Stern as like, don't ever do that to me again. You just made me feel. And what he's really saying is like, you just made me not ignorant. And I didn't want that to be the case, because now I'm going to know that these people are humans and I'm going to hurt them in the sense that I can't save everyone and in the sense of I'm trying to profit. Mm -hmm. And we then see that old man during the liquidation of the ghetto, which is when they start sending people off to the concentration camps. 
And we see him very proudly tell these Nazis that are pulling him out of line, like, I work for Oscar Schindler. I work for Oscar Schindler. And he's like, they're like, yeah, yeah, you do. And they just push him on the ground and they shoot him in the head. And we just have to move on from that. And all of a sudden, everything is so real within, yeah, everything within this film becomes very real. And we as the audience are like, well... We could enjoy it while we could, but now we're stuck in it, and now we're going to watch the rest of the movie. Yeah, with the murder of that one-armed worker, um, that was the first visible death in the movie, and it really jars at you. It, I mean, he was just such a joyous, happy man who was just, you know, it had an honor to have worked in that factory and to be essential, as you said, and now that he's dead, you're like, uh, now what? Yeah. Uh, right at the same time, Oscar Schindler is seeing the liquidation off from a distance. And at this point, Schindler has this sort of, I don't know if it's a change of heart, but he can't ignore the problem anymore. And he was forced to watch the liquidation from a distance. And his wife, who they were horseback riding at the time, is like, I don't want to watch this anymore. Let's go. And I think that's a perfect representation of people today getting to make that decision. Do I stay up to date and current with atrocities and events? Or do I get to turn it off and move on with my life? So the liquidation of the ghetto is a major turning point in this movie. Um, what is happening at this point is all of the men, women, and children that could potentially work in a labor camp are being forced from their homes in the ghetto now to the concentration camp that recently opened outside of Krakow. And um, everyone else is, is being shot and killed. So it, it is a 15 minute scene of people running, screaming, Nazis shooting people. Uh, it, it is after the first death that you saw just moments earlier, uh, this was a difficult scene to watch. Yeah, it's definitely a moment of, oh yeah, this might mm -hmm. be a movie, but it's going to be a movie about certain atrocities. And sure, when you hear about it, it's about hopefulness. You know that there's <laughs> there's gonna be things beforehand that is like, oh, yeah, that mm -hmm. happened. And it's... Yeah, there's a lot of things about hopefulness, like you said. Um, and there's a lot of times where the movie... The movie is really trying to educate people and get as many people to watch it as it can. But because of what it's trying to educate them on, it's going to have these like really dark, like hard to get through scenes because that's what happened. And this, I think, is really like the the first like big one that just like, oh, wow. Mired in the middle of all of this, one significant moment of the liquidation is this is the first time you see the woman or sorry, the girl with the red coat. Mm -hmm. And so, as we mentioned, this film is entirely black and white. Um with a couple of exceptions. And one of those exceptions is this girl you see running away from Nazi troops. Um, she's walking away. She's she's casually walking yeah. in the streets, like clueless to what's happening. Yeah, she has no idea what's going on. But she's in this red coat, which is, you know, pretty shocking and stands out very distinctly from the rest of the scenes and the chaos that's around her. You want to talk about that a little bit more? Uh, yeah, so that, that girl in the red coat... Um, now sort of represents nations and powerful people being able to ignore atrocities that are occurring around the world. Um, all forms of genocide, like when we don't intervene, because the United States took a very long time to intervene in World War II. It was really, we waited until it affected us. Um, Pearl Harbor? Yeah, Pearl Harbor is when we entered the war. So we waited until we were attacked by a foreign power, and then we decided to get involved. Yeah. Um, and so it's sort of a nod to Roosevelt and Eisenhower, like, you can choose to ignore it, and you can be safe for a pretty long time. But then you're reminded of that expression of, like, they came for this people, and I didn't do nothing. <laughs> they came for these people and I didn't do anything about it. They came for these people and I didn't do anything about it. Finally, they came for me and no one was there to do anything about it. Um, and I do think that's like a cynical perspective of I should only help people 
uh, so that I can be helped later. But there is an importance to it's going to get worse. Mm -hmm. And so take action now. Just on that quote. Um, I would. I think that's a cynical read. I don't think the quote itself is cynical. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, right, right. yeah. Okay, <laughs> just never mind then. <laughs> I get upset thinking about it, not okay. because like it's not true per se, but it's like, really, you're only gonna help because at the end of the day, you might be the one getting like. <laughs> I'm reminded of this concept of a lot of people argue: is altruism real? Um, or is everything selfish? Like, is every decision you make selfish or is there such thing as true altruism? That's what that quote reminds me of. Um, but I'm actually not leaning against altruism. I truly believe in altruism. So speaking of altruism and just one moment in the liquidation that really got to me was when we had this small Nazi boy who recognized a, a schoolmate of her uh, of his uh who was a jewish girl and realized that he should try to help her and was actually able to hide her and saw the mother run down and hid both of them under i believe a flight of stairs mm -hmm. um, i mean so just like a little moment like that was a reminder that you know again these are human beings and they had relationships prior to the genocide and as the genocide was being implemented it's probably very symbolic that it was a child that was mm -hmm. the one that thought huh this is wrong. I know this person. We need to try to save and protect them. And I think um, there's also a conversation to be had about it's really easy to demonize a people that you don't know. And mm -hmm. so for the kid, he was doing his job in terms of blowing his whistle when there was a, a Jewish person because that was his job. But as soon as he related to someone on a personal level that's when he was able to stop himself and reflect on what he was doing and i think when we think about quote-unquote solutions or when we talk about reducing the amount of anti-semitism or racism or prejudice it comes down to personal relationships and the only way to overcome that type of hatred is by developing love amongst brothers and sisters in that sense yeah and i think like further symbolism with that scene um because they're children it's sort of maybe a commentary on like this sort of thing is learned um this kid's parents are nazis and so he's a nazi and gets this blow the whistle job but because he's a kid he's kind of like oh well this is my friend so i don't want to you know blow the whistle on them pardon the it's going to be a corrupt nazi someday yeah but um, it's sort of like this innocence of children where it's like, oh, well, my friend doesn't count. Like, I don't think this kid's realizing like, oh, this is bad for everyone. He's just like, this is bad for my friend. So I'm going to help my friend. And right. then like maybe, you know, right. everyone else still goes. It's a little bit of like object permanence. Mm -hmm. And which definitely like we talk about that phase in um, psychology of things don't exist when you can't see them. And But you can also talk about that in a moral sense of atrocities aren't occurring if I'm not hearing about it. Or if I do hear about it, I get to turn it off. Or like everything that's not happening in my country or anything that's not happening in my state isn't my problem. Mm -hmm. I think object permanence actually has a much broader yeah. perspective yeah. in that sense. And it's and we see that with Schindler's wife. Yeah. She literally says, I can't watch this anymore. And, and then she doesn't. They, and, they, and she just rides away. And that's the fact that she had the privilege to ride her horse away is mm -hmm. remarkable. So while we're seeing um, all this happen in the ghetto with the Jews, and we're also seeing... Um, Schindler's character develop we also have this character Gert who we mentioned um briefly before um an SS officer and he's really like the villain of the movie and so at this point this is when we really get the proper introduction to him and we see him at the concentration camp and again like this is some really tough stuff to watch um one thing for me there's a scene where they're building like the bunkers for the for all the workers to stay in and this woman worker walks up to Gert and like a bunch of other officers and she goes this foundation is wrong this house is going to collapse we need to start over 
And so, like, he kind of talks to her and he's like, oh, you're educated? And she's like, yeah, I'm an engineer. I got my degree from this university. And they're talking a little bit. And then he just shoots her in the head. And then he turns to the officers and goes, um, fix the foundation and then rebuild it. So he just kills her, but then does exactly what she told him to do anyway. And for me, that was really, like, a moment of, like, oh, wow, this dude, like, likes doing this. Like, he just wants to kill people. He definitely gets, like, a power rush from it because mm-hmm. um, he... I don't remember if he's the one who does the killing, but he commands it, and they start pulling her away. And he's like, no, right here, in front of everyone. Like, the yeah. point of this is for everyone to get to see. Mm-hmm. And, like, it's definitely disgusting, I guess is the perfect word. Huh? Mm-hmm. He understood the dynamics of fear, and he knew how to control people through fear. Uh, another way you saw that is uh, when he's perched up in his house, mm-hmm. and he starts indiscriminately sniping people from his patio, while his wife is in the bedroom, just you know, calling out at him, saying, no, just come back to bed, and he's just sniping people. I mean, it's terrible to watch but you start seeing people not slacking because they Mm -hmm. fear if they move slowly or they rest on a bench that they might be the next one to be shot and you just get the you get the idea that this man understands how to strike fear and remove hope from everybody in this camp what made me feel horrible uh aside from like all of what you just described is the girlfriend or wife laying in bed topless Um, being like, oh, you're doing that again? Like, come back Mm -hmm. to bed. And he comes back and sort of, like, casually points the gun at her. And she, like, kicks it away and is like, quit acting so childish. As if it was childlike of him to indiscriminately shoot a bunch of people. And it made me so uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And I literally, like, paused the movie at that point and was like, I'm going to take a breather because, oh my God. That's like, uh, at the very top, Greg, you mentioned the idea of normalizing hatred. Like, he might as well have been playing a video game. Like, that's how normal they all viewed this as, even though those are real people. These people didn't have personalities to him. They didn't have a face. They were Mm -hmm. just distant people, you know, running around a camp. And he was just, you know, taking snipes at them. Yeah. Interestingly enough, he falls in love with, like, a, a Jewish woman who he chooses to be his maid. Um, and abuses her, like, as a form of hating himself. Um, that he, he doesn't want to be in love with her. But he understands that this person is, in fact, a person. He does not, in any slightest uh, form of the imagination generalize that to the rest of the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. This is not like a profound revolutionary character development for him. We just see that he's more dynamic of a character. He's not one-sided, which is important to know that Nazis, again, were just as three-dimensional as everyone else, but that doesn't make them good. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important to point out Oscar Schindler is a Nazi. He's not in the camps, like, as a German soldier... But he has the swastika pin. He's a member of the Nazi party. So it's important to note, like, these aren't just people walking around with armbands and, like, uniforms. Like, these are everyday people that some of them um, manage a work camp and some of them manage a pot factory. Yeah. So for the folks who did not want to see this movie and have been avoiding it, this is the section of the movie that they're avoiding. It is raw, there is indiscriminate killings, there are gory scenes, it hurts to watch. Um, Alex mentioned he needed to take a break at some point. That I, I felt the exact same way. Um, Joe had already mentioned you know, the scene where the architect was shot dead by Gert was one moment that really stuck out to you. For me, it, it was Gert sniping people from his patio. Um, a- Alex, is there a scene that really stood out to you that was, wow, this hurt me to watch uh, um so for, first i definitely want to say i can't imagine or i can imagine but uh, it must have been so difficult to watch this movie in theaters the fact that i got a chance to take breaks mm-hmm. like definitely prevented me from full-on bawling i teared up multiple times like i i definitely could say i cried at the end 
But if I didn't get those breaks, if I didn't have my cats next to me that I got to pet and like calm myself down, I can't imagine how bad I could have gotten. Um, one scene that really jumps out to me is in between the labor camp that they're at and when they're told that they are going to be going to Auschwitz, um, the Nazis start performing fitness tests. And these fitness tests are done in the nude, and uh, they're sort of indiscriminately marking people like, oh, healthy, unhealthy, healthy, unhealthy, and getting it wrong a couple of times here and there and not caring. Um, and we also see the women sort of pricking their fingers and using their blood as makeup, as like blush to like look more healthy um, and not malnourished. And these are the like little scenes that jump out at me and it makes me so uncomfortable. And it's the exact reality that I think we all have to experience mm -hmm. in order to not let it happen again. And I think like this aspect of purposeful ignorance is dangerous overall. And the movie does a great job of highlighting how you cannot avoid ignorance by reintroducing the girl in red. So as they're sending people to Auschwitz and they're marking other people as unfit to even be sent to Auschwitz, those people are being murdered and dumped in a mass grave and are being burnt. And towards the end of this section, we see the girl in red on a gurney um, being dropped off into the burning pit and you see that she is now dead. And at this moment, you realize, you know, this little girl that was previously walking carelessly down the street in the ghetto, uh, her life is now taken. And that's something you just cannot take your eyes off of. Right. And if we want to stick with that metaphor of this girl in the red are people who choose to be ignorant and not help out because they're not the ones being affected, well, eventually you are going to be the ones that are mm -hmm. affected. And I would say that's kind of like moving everyone towards Auschwitz is, I guess, the conclusion of Act 2, where we sort of see that Schindler needs to buckle down and he needs to make a decision. Does he have enough money and is he done with what, he's, what, what his goal was and is he going to leave? Or has he finally seen so much that he needs to do something about it? Mm -hmm. um, and thank God he chose the latter. Yeah, because at first, him saving the people from the camps really was just kind of a, a happy accident almost. He's like, well, if I get cheap labor and they happen to not have to go to the camp anymore, I guess it just works out for everybody. But really, I just want the cheap labor. Like, it could come from anywhere. But Alex, like you said, this is really the tipping point where he's like, okay, it's not for cheap labor anymore. Do I want to save these people? Like, do I actively want to attempt to get them out of the camp? And he has that exact conversation with his accountant, Stern. He lays it all out on the table, uh, again offers him a drink, which he again refuses. But he, uh, he asks, you know, should I just pack up and go home? Or should I actually lay down some money and save these people? Um, and as Alex said, he, he chooses the latter. Yeah. There are a couple of times, and I just remembered you mentioning Stern. Stern almost gets taken away to a camp because he had left his paperwork at home. And Schindler has to go to the trains uh, to find his accountant. It's another domino falling for Schindler to have his epiphany of, mm. I need to do something about this. Because you see him like get angry at his accountant and he again tries to excuse himself of like, oh, I don't care about him. I care about losing my accountant. Yeah. But you see the worry in his face as he works through potentially losing him and you realize like this is going to be a bigger deal. Like mm -hmm. you're, you're not going to be able to stay quiet. Once you see enough, you can't will yourself ignorant again. And I guess that's what it comes down to again in our society. Like, Let's make ourselves aware. That's really the only thing we can ask you to do. And that's when we can start that conversation and take action. Yeah. And so luckily Schindler does take action. Um, he does decide to save. Um, he ends up saving over a thousand Jews um, by bribing Gert. 
um, and he pays per person that he saves. He's basically buying these people, quote-unquote, to work in his factory, but he's really buying their freedom from Auschwitz. Right. Um, and there's this really tense scene that I think is a callback to, I guess, how humorous the beginning of the movie is. But Gert has, he tries to have this banter with Schindler of like, oh, but if you're willing to pay for these Jews, that means you're making triple the amount of money that you're going to give me. And if you admit to that, that means it must be quadruple. Am I right or am I right? <laughs> and it's a very uncomfortable like, yeah, let's joke about the freedom of Jews. Um, that to me is a really important distinction to look how much, even just viewing it once, look how much I've grown as a viewer mm. of being able to laugh, being able to laugh but think, oh, I shouldn't really be laughing at that. And then yeah. at the end being like, Oh, I'm not even laughing because yeah. now this mm -hmm. is talking about the reality of lives here, right. which should have been my position at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And like over the course of a simple three hours. Yeah. Eyes are wide open. You're just baffled that he's still joking about this situation. And Liam Neeson struggles with it, too. Sorry, Schindler struggles with that, too, where he goes along with it just to be able to purchase these Jews and save their lives. But he is struggling. Absolutely. There was definitely a point throughout the whole movie where we see Schindler kind of get away with more and more um, of sort of demonstrating that he cares about the, the Jewish people. And I'm anxious the entire time of like, is he going to get caught? Are people going to start accusing him of things? And this was one really intense moment where he has to keep it together. And yeah, he is struggling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like you said, Alex, like at the beginning of the movie... You start off laughing, and then by the end, you're just as tense as Schindler. So I really think we kind of go on this journey with Schindler of, like, realizing the gravity of what happened. Um, back to really, like, what I think has been kind of the point we've been making throughout this whole episode is this movie was made to educate. Um, and so for Schindler, this is really the moment where he's understanding the gravity of what's going to happen and i think we the audience are finally um as clued in as he is um obviously a lot of us were looking on with retrospect but for some people this might have been the first lesson they got about the holocaust yeah and so like over the course of the third act we see that list get created we see obstacles um in between but ultimately we are successful in saving a, a thousand or so uh, Jewish people. And there are a lot of like tidbits throughout. But one moment that I really want to talk about is that conclusion before the epilogue, I guess. Yeah, it's um, a climatic scene. It's you see Schindler. He gives a great speech because the war is over and he explains you're all free and I'm a Nazi. So I need to leave. And I'm going to because I'm going to get persecuted. And the Jewish people see him off and they thank him for everything he's done. And he has this amazingly poetic and emotionally filled breakdown. Realizing how many more people he could have saved if he hadn't spent so much money doing this. Or if he had successfully sold the car. Or maybe if he had even like taken off his ring, which was made of gold, and traded it for just one more life. And you see his breakdown, and you, I connected with it so much. In that sense of guilt and shame of, I got to live my best life while you were living your worst life. And I could have done more. I could have done more. And that's all he keeps repeating. And no one says differently. Yeah. Not a single... Nobody disagrees. Yeah, not a single person is like, oh, well, you couldn't have known. Because well, you did. Doesn't Stern kind of be like, hey, man, like, you still did a good job. You did, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, they do comfort him in that, right. in, this, in the thought process of, well, the past is the past. Yeah. At this point, don't let it burden you. But not a single person corrects mm. him in that he could have done more mm. if he had done something earlier. Right. And I think that lack of speaking up 
yeah. is important because that's how mm-hmm. we should feel. Yeah. But at the end of the day, they all come around, they hug him, they comfort him while he cries because he has grown and we yeah. have grown. And when people grow, you want to acknowledge that without dismissing the fact that they were bad at the beginning. Yeah. And I think it's a powerful scene in that he's the only one breaking down, though he's surrounded by near over a thousand other people. And I, I think that's partially attributed to the fact that these Jews had been through so much, they had nothing left to give. Like, they had no more emotions. They had seen it all. They they could not have broken down further. They have, mm-hmm. Yeah, they have been experiencing right. it. And this was the first time that Schindler let himself experience yeah. it. Um, it definitely reminds me of when, I guess, you could argue that... Um, in, in today's society, white people don't have to experience as many atrocities firsthand. And so when they do, they're really like broken up about it. And even when they're just connecting for other people's sake, they go crazy and they're like, well, why aren't you more outraged than, than that? Um, and the minority community is like, oh, well, we didn't expect anything better. Mm-hmm. Like... Um, this is the outcome that was expected to happen based on how our lives have gone. So it's not that we're not upset, but we're already used to it. And that's what's happening to Schindler. Yeah, I think there's some uh, story about um, this guy gets pulled over for no reason um, because he's driving while black and his white friend or um, significant other or whatever in the car is like, that's ridiculous. Like, why aren't you more mad? And it's like, that happens all the time. Like, that's, like, that was the best case scenario, what just happened. Like, that's why I'm okay with it. Yeah, like, you can only be outraged for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, something else I read is, like, one of the best lessons I ever learned was in chorus class, where the entire choir has to hold out a note for a really long time. And what the teacher and composer teaches is when you need to take a breath take a breath because the rest of us are going to carry it Mm -hmm. and when you're ready to step back in step back in and let other people take breaks as well and so one thing that occurs in today's politics is it's outrage after outrage after outrage that at a certain point it's exhausting and that's kind of the goal the powers in the administration are redirecting your anger over and over again to exhaust you to the point of compliance. Because at a certain point, you forget about all of it because it keeps it keeps overlapping with other things. And when you get exhausted, you stop fighting back. Mm-hmm. This climatic scene also has a great moment of reconciliation when... Schindler uh, lets these soldiers know that had been protecting the camp, the Nazi soldiers around the camp, um, gives them the opportunity to shoot all the Jews. And they had been instructed from the Nazi leadership to kill all the Jews left in all the camps in, in Poland. And he uh, gives them the opportunity saying, you, this is your chance now where you can shoot them or you can return home as men instead of murderers. And... Everybody looks around, the soldiers look at the group of people, and they all decide to go home because they realize that it's not, it's not worth shooting these people. It's going to solve nothing by killing the remaining people in the room. I thought that was a really powerful moment at the end. I agree. Um, for me, there was just one more scene right after um, Schindler leaves where all of the Jewish people are sleeping outside waiting for their, I guess, liberators, their saviors. And this guy comes on a horse and is like, all right, are you guys part of a camp? Well, you're free. Like, we liberated you. And they're like, well, where do we go? And he's like, well, don't go west. They don't like you there. (laughs) Oh, and don't go east. They definitely don't like you there. And then another guy chimes in. Well, we're hungry. Do you have something to eat? And he's just like, well, there's a town a couple of miles down if you want to head that way. And then a hard cut to like 600, 1,000 people walking towards a town. And it's another reality that 
on an objective perspective, like maybe was meant to be a humorous relief, but in the humor of that's true, which is a very mm -hmm. negative humor in this light of after something horrible happens and it gets quote unquote resolved, there is a lot more steps after that to get back to the point of balance and freedom mm -hmm. and fairness, if you will, civilization, right? Yeah, because when he, because <clears throat> when they're like, well, where do we go now? I was like, oh, wow, like, if this guy, he doesn't end up saying it, but if he was like, I guess you just go home, they're like, well, we don't have those anymore, so. And it's just, like you said, this this reality of like, oh, like, it got better, but like, it's not good. Yeah. And when you think about why anti-Semitism still exists today, that's because after the war ended, the causes of the war were not necessarily resolved. Mm -hmm. You had Jews throughout Europe and the world who had their belongings taken away. They had no possessions. They had no wealth to their name. And they're literally wandering Europe looking for a place to go. And for many generations of people, I mean, it took a long time to get their lives back together. And the hatred amongst German Nazis and, and, and other Nazis in Europe, that, I mean, those issues resonated for generations to come. And while it became illegal now to kill Jews, uh, you know, those feelings did not necessarily go away. Similarly, in the United States, uh, when we discuss, uh, you know, the rights of African Americans um, and, and all the progress that we've made in civil rights in the United States, a lot of people look back at well, yeah, after the Civil War, you know, the slaves were freed. Like, why did they still need support and any kind of uh, recompensation from the U.S. government? It's a very similar situation, uh, as you saw uh, at the end of Schindler's List, where, you know, the war was ended, these slaves were liberated, but they have no possessions, they have no money, mm -hmm. and they would wander the country trying to look for opportunities for work, for a place to make a living, place to raise a family. And it to this day, you know, it took generations for people to even come close to the starting line that a lot of the wealthier Americans in the country were able to take advantage of from that time. Right. And I'm, I'm reminded of this metaphor where like, if you line up two people for a race and one of them has trained all of their lives for this race and another one literally is like discovering how to like, walk on two feet and it has just been like um released from chains barely even understands the concept of staying on the track as one of the rules of the race even though they're starting from the same point when the race starts you know clearly who is going to win yeah. and there needs to be more systems in place to help uh, the minorities to help underprivileged people who don't have access to the same things that privileged people do. And that's where things like affirmative action come from. And that's where things like scholarships for specific underprivileged people comes yeah. from. It's, it's to help them catch up. It's not bringing the white man down. It's helping us all be on the same level. And so I think the end of Schindler's List does a good job while wrapping a bow on this transformation of Schindler from an apathetic, opportunistic businessman to somebody who genuinely empathized and tried to save the lives of these Jewish people. They still presented the issues of reconciliation in the post-war mm -hmm. environment really powerfully by showing these hundreds, over a thousand people wandering this field, not knowing where to go next. And uh, it was so representative uh, to me of how, you know, the issues were not resolved. And that brings us to the world that we are in today, where there are still issues of anti-Semitism, which is now on the rise in the United States and around the world. Mm -hmm. And not apart from anti-Semitism, I don't want to take away from that, but, you know, just uh, the idea of like normalization of hatred of an entire group of xenophobia or Islamophobia. Um and the idea that, oh, like, yeah, we're doing atrocities against them, but it's to protect the country. And so you should accept that. And people do. And, you know, that's just such a dangerous thing because, especially since we've been talking a lot about, you know, lack of education on the Holocaust, there's also a lack of education of how that came to be. 
Yeah. People didn't just wake up and all of a sudden there were work camps all over right. Europe. It was a process. Yeah. Yeah, there was a slow progression of um, these people. I mean, in the movie, they start basically by being put into ghettos. And then from the ghettos to labor camps, from labor camps to concentration camps, which were only like slightly different in that the labor <laughs> was for the sake of busy work, mm -hmm. uh, to then start to gas them and kill them by the millions. Um, it did not start at the gassing. And that's a great point to bring up. It started with fear. It started with people in power saying, in order to protect yourself, we have to hurt other people. But it's worth it in the end. And that's what resonates with me so much in today's climate in the United yeah. States. Because... I, what fascinates me the most in my study of genocide is the normalization of hatred and how normal people are coerced and convinced to do terrible things. Mm -hmm. And like you just articulately, articulately said, it is a process and it begins with people just thinking that it's okay to say terrible things about somebody because they look differently than you, because they pray differently than you. And once you start going down that road and a administration begins to uh, support a certain belief system, that's what's really concerning to the point that those words and instruction from a uh, government could really uh, it be exacerbated on a national level. Yeah, you can blame a certain group of people for anything. If you lose your job, oh, that's because some immigrant stole it. If mm -hmm. um, teachers are on strike, oh, that's because they're exhausted of all of um, the, the large class sizes, which is only happening because illegal immigrants are filling them up. Like, it's, it's really easy to justify hatred. Especially if you don't really... I feel like hatred doesn't need to be backed up. Like, if someone were like, yeah, illegal immigrants are flooding the country, which means that they're flooding the school system, which is why teachers are so fed up. It's like, okay, do you have any data to back that up? No, but it's obviously what's happening. Yeah, it's the logical progression of things. Yeah. And I think I definitely agree with that point of bottom line, education. Educating yourself is the only solution. Um, when we talk about things like political correctness and overly sensitive generations and stuff like that, what we're complaining about is this lack of education and insensitivity. Yeah. And I do agree that intent is important. When we talk about political correctness, someone's intent, whether they are racist or not, should be factored in. Like, are they racist out of ignorance? Are they racist out of, like, actual, like, beliefs of these people are inferior? Right. Um, I distinctly remember in middle school being comfortable laughing at jokes about Jewish people and ovens, laughing about jokes about black people uh, supporting their families. And I was comfortable with it, not because I didn't know it was wrong, but because I didn't truly understand the wide scope ramifications of what I was talking about. I didn't understand what six million meant. I didn't understand what genocide was. And so... Was I a racist child? Yeah, there were there were aspects of me that was exceptionally ignorant and it could have prevented me from, um, I guess, believing that all races or all ethnicities or all groups of religions are equal. And the only solution to that was an education. Right. Mm -hmm. And I completely resonate with what you just said, Alex. And with an education being such a privilege in this country... Um, I mean, that was the moment that I had these realizations is when I had the opportunity to study these at Elon University and I was able to study abroad and I was able to visit genocide memorials in Rwanda and I was able to visit Dachau concentration camp in Germany. Like being at these places and learning about it and experiencing it makes you realize, wow, like this is something that tremendously affected millions of people and continues to affect millions of people throughout the world. And, you know, it's something that cannot be taken lightly. And until you have that experience, um, it's something that you don't quite recognize. And unfortunately, a lot of people around the world do not understand what hatred has caused in the past. 
That'll do it for this episode. Thank you all so much for listening. Please tune in next time when we talk about Scott Pilgrim vs. the World and expectations in dating. If you liked us, find us on Twitter and Instagram at 2 underscore bald men and find us on Facebook. And don't forget to rate and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. Thank you all so much again, and if you are driving, we hope you got to your destination safely and on time.